I don't know about you, but I sometimes struggle with judging people. I like to get comfy on my throne where there's distance between me and others and pretend like it's okay for me to think things about the way others dress, the way others look, the way others parent. The crazy thing about judgment is that we can hide under the idea that it's right to do that. That we're just trying to look out for other people. We all struggle with judgment. Which is why the readings this morning are really important for us to pay attention to. Each of these passages looks in a different way at judgment. We can judge people and think that we're actually just sticking up for what's good. Judgment can be hard to, to pinpoint. It's like a slippery fish. And we often don't realize that we're, we're doing it. We think things about other people, that their hair is funny, that they're parenting wrong, that they like or don't like Hawaiian pizza, or that you can't be a Christian if you believe that. And so what's the big deal? Right, if it's just what happens in my own head and I don't say anything to anyone about it, how is it so harmful? Or if it's just late at night when I scroll through my newsfeed and I need to feel better about myself. Jerry Bridges is a Christian author who talks about judging others and he talks about it like this. He says, the sin of judgment is often practiced under the guise of being zealous for what's right. And what starts as something about what other people do can quickly become who they are. Judgment, like oil and water, divides people. And when we judge, we divide us versus them. And so we're caught in this. This is our culture in many ways, thrives on polarizing people and putting them against each other. And we see it all the time. And so as Christians who are commanded to love one another, to have the widest embrace for all people, like Jesus did, how can we live in our culture today? What are some of the tools that the gospel gives us to combat the sin of judgment? These passages this morning, I think, offer us three guardrails against judgment. The first comes to us through the parable Jesus gives us, tells us that forgiveness is actually a powerful antidote to judgment. Peter comes to Jesus and asks him how often he has to forgive uh, the sin of a brother. Up to seven times, he asks. Now we can look at that number seven and think, Peter's lowballing this one. But actually, it's the opposite. See, the common view in Jewish culture was not seven times forgiving a brother. It was three. 
And so Peter is upping the bar. He's doubling it and adding one. He's being generous. And Jesus' response to him is even more staggering when Jesus says to him, no, Peter, not seven times. Seventy-seven times. In other words, there is no limit. And then Jesus illustrates this with a story. He tells a story of a servant who held a high position of authority. This servant oversaw um, a, a large kingdom budget. This was somebody who worked directly for the king, who probably looked after, you know, part of the king's empire and was responsible, legally responsible for their share of the budget, whether that was the taxes or whatever. For whatever reason, Jesus doesn't tell us this, this servant could not pay it back, whether the servant lost the money or what. And so when the master, the king, calls the servant in, the servant is in deep trouble because in modern-day language, the amount of money that this servant owes is, is roughly about a trillion dollars. So paying it back, right? Not even Jeff Bezos could come close to this one. So then what's next for this servant who's, who's called into this, this, the king's presence and can't repay? What, what does he do? Well, he... He pulls a hand solo, right? He says to the king, you know I'm good for it. I just need a little more time. Even though everybody in the room knows that's not the case. Then the king offers something the servant didn't even ask for. Goes above and beyond. Took pity on the servant and forgave the debt. Just like that. It's gone. It's in the past. The slate is wiped clean. The, the king gave the servant his life back. Because if a, if a servant couldn't repay the debts, you know, we think, you know, okay, well, bankruptcy? No, that wasn't an option then. What, what would happen to this servant is that his whole family, including himself, would be sold into slavery. Life as they know it, gone. This king, in forgiving the debt, gives the servant and the servant's family their lives back, their freedom back, their hopes and dreams back. And so how does this servant respond? Well, he, he turns around and he treats one of his peers, a, a fellow uh, servant of the king, the opposite as how the king treats him. The verse could be, you know, uh, the, the servant locked up his colleague for a few hundred bucks. And so, when we look at this parable, we see these incredibly different numbers in terms of the debt. A trillion dollars versus a few hundred dollars. The king forgives the trillion dollar debt, but the servant can't forgive the hundred dollar debt. What's going on? Why couldn't the servant forgive he lost sight of his story. His own story of forgiveness. And see, forgiveness needs a deeper motive. It doesn't just happen on its own. And the only real way of forgiving people is if there's some deeper motivation to that forgiveness. Some people forgive other people because it makes themselves feel good. Oh, I'm a generous person. I forgive. But... 
But then you're only benefiting your own self by offering forgiveness. Some people forgive others because then they'll have an IOU, right? I forgave you that, so then, you know, years down the road, when, when I do something to you, then you'll kind of pay it back. But real forgiveness is different. Gospel forgiveness is different. Gospel forgiveness doesn't, we don't do it for our own benefit. We don't do it, we do it because God has forgiven us. It has a deeper motive. This servant lost sight of that motive. He didn't find his motivation from the debt that he had been forgiven. Now, this doesn't mean that forgiveness is easy. Forgiveness is very hard, but the gospel offers us the resources to do it. Because when we realize how much God has given to forgive us of our debt, it puts things in perspective. But what does forgiveness have to do with judgment? Well, forgiveness is an escape hatch against judgment. Judgment tries to cover up our own sense of insignificance by putting other people in our control, right? We try to, we, we try to make ourselves feel like we're important, that we're good, by pushing other people down. But forgiveness roots us in our significance before God. God loves us so deeply that he forgave us. So we don't have to look for significance from anywhere else. We don't have to judge. It's an escape hatch. And so when we practice forgiveness the way that Jesus tells us we can, the more hope and love we will have towards others who disagree with our opinions or our beliefs. Forgiveness is a, is a guardrail that keeps us away from the sin of judgment. But now let's jump back to the book of Genesis. At the end of Genesis and the Joseph story, Joseph's brothers are still scared of him. And rightly so, I think, I would probably be scared if I tried to hurt my brother and then he became a very powerful man in Egypt and I was under his control. Like, that would, that would lead me to be pretty scared of him. And so, um, so they send Joseph a message. They're so scared of him that they're not even the ones to deliver this message. They send somebody else. You know, you, messenger, you go, you break the news to him and you try to convince him to forgive us. And the, the messenger says, this is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask, this is because Jacob is, uh, is, is dead, and this is Jacob's last words. He says, I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of, your servant, of the servants of the God of your father. So they send this message to Joseph, and then they go to Joseph, and they bow down before him. And Joseph's response is staggering. He says, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? See, on the one hand, he points out what his 
brothers did was wrong, right? And they intended to hurt him. And not once does Joseph say that they're released from God's judgment for what they've done. But Joseph refuses what I can imagine to be a pretty deep temptation to, at the moment where his brothers are bowed down before him, to take that place of judge and to say, I am justified. You, I, I can judge you based upon what you've done to me. I'm in that place, but he doesn't do it. Why? He says to them, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. So first, let's be clear. Joseph is not turning a blind eye to their, their sin, their wrong action, their poor treatment of him. But he doesn't fall into the, to the, to the temptation of taking the place as their judge. Instead, he chooses to see God's work in the situation. Joseph sees that God brought him to Egypt for the saving of many lives, including Israel's. He chooses to trust God's divine activity in his life. What about us? The providence of God tells us that God is at work in all things. Couldn't that also mean that the times that we have been wronged by others and are tempted to judge others based on that, couldn't, that, couldn't it also be that God is involved in those situations? Even when people treat us poorly, even when we're tempted to take the place of judge, Joseph avoided this by rooting himself in God's providence. Now let's turn to Romans. Paul speaks to the Christians in Rome about their relationship with one another. The strong and the weak, as Paul puts it, are in conflict with one another. The strong, Donkey Kong, the weak, Toad, right? It's not exactly talking about size in this. The debate about who the strong are and who the weak are isn't quite clear. There's a lot of different theories out there. But what all scholars agree on is that the strong were those who were confident in their Christian freedom. They were confident in the fullness of their grace in Jesus Christ that sets them free from the laws of uh, some of the laws of, of the Old Testament. And the weak were still struggling to grasp that. They were still holding on to some of the traditions of their Jewish culture. But to make things worse, the ones that, who were weak were judging the ones who were taking more liberties. The, the ones who were, you know, eating, eating meat or... Uh, not following all of the Jewish feasts. They were judging them based on that. And the ones who were strong were looking down on and belittling the ones who were having a hard time grasping the grace of Jesus. And so what does Paul say in, in response to this conflict? How does Paul address them? He says, stop judging one another no matter what position you take. Because people don't stand before us as judge, but before God. It is God who judges. This is hard when we talk about things of, of doctrine and belief. Anyone who's been in the church for any period of time knows that it's, 
it's hard to live together with people who don't agree with us. Jerry Bridges, in his incredibly helpful chapter on judgment, sums up Paul's address in Romans 14 like this. He says, Some don't, do not see the manner of dress in church or the type of music we sing as matters of preference. For some people, it's a conviction. And he goes on, he says, I respect their thinking, and I wouldn't want to change their convictions at all. I'd like to be like Paul, who took a similar position regarding divisive issues in Rome. Paul did not try to change anyone's convictions. Instead, he said, each should be fully convinced in his own mind. Each person should be fully convinced of what they believe in their own mind. And then Bridges goes on. He says, such a treatment makes many of us uncomfortable. We don't like ambiguity in issues of Christian practice. It is difficult for us to accept that one person's opinion can be different from ours, and both of us be accepted by God. But that is what Paul says in Romans 14. And if we take Paul seriously and hold our convictions with humility— it will help us avoid the sin of judgment. What Bridges is saying is not that we shouldn't care about what other people believe or what other people have in terms of convictions, but that we shouldn't judge them for their opinions or convictions. So then we should talk about it. What does worship, what does faithful worship look like? But we shouldn't let it get in the way of how we treat one another. How can we do this? Well, Paul, in Romans 14, roots the conflict. He says, you'll resolve this conflict if you find your acceptance not in your specific beliefs or convictions, but in Christ alone. We are not saved by doctrine. We are saved by Jesus. We are not saved because we have the right beliefs. We are saved because we fall on the right Savior. Sometimes, the, the, doctrine, I'm not saying doctrine is not important. It is very important. And it's important that we open up dialogue about we, what we believe. And we base what we believe based on Scripture. And we, we wrestle with these things and try to understand them to the best of our knowledge. But at the end of the day, it is Christ's and His blood that covers our sin. It's not our belief beliefs, specific beliefs. Often our judgments are because we have lost sight of the gospel and it ends up ripping the church apart. Maybe you're thinking these three guardrails, I go over them all the time. <laughs> I have a hard time forgiving I lose sight of God's activity in my life, and I, I don't always hold my convictions with humility. I can sometimes lord them over people. I can feel like a car careening down a hill and bouncing from side to side, and eventually I'm going to go over and, and off the cliff. And so how do I have hope in the midst of this? The answer is we can only have hope when we go over the guardrails, if we have someone who we can fall onto, 
How can those of us guilty of judging others go unpunished? Well, this is actually the great twist in Jesus' parable. See, the king clears the debt. How is he able to do that? Any economist in the room knows that you can't just, you can't just snap debt away. Debt has to go somewhere. It has to be dealt with. And so when this king has this servant in front of him, owing him a trillion dollars, and he says, I forgive you, you can go free. That debt has to go somewhere. It's like this. If you came into my house, and you took a baseball, and you hurled the baseball through my front window, leaving shards of glass on the floor, first of all, I would be very upset, and I would make you clean it up. And then I would have two options, right? I could say to you, you have to pay for this. You threw that baseball through my window. That's your responsibility. Or I could say, don't worry about it. I'll take it. But the glass has to be fixed. Am I right? Winter's coming. When the king forgives the servant, what happens to the debt? The king takes it. He takes it upon himself. This is what Christ did for us on the cross. He took it. He took the servant's debt. Your debt, my debt, our debt. And he dealt with it once and for all so that all who fall on him will be saved. Christ in his life and his death and his resurrection is the only thing that need, it, it, the only thing that gives us the grace when we go over the guardrails. When we see Jesus in this way, he's not just a person who we admire. He's, he's a savior who we love. And the cross is not just a grace we need, but it's an image that compels us into a life of gratitude, a life characterized by love and forgiveness, uh, of, of humility. Let's pray. Father, we are people who so easily judge others. We have a hard time forgiving, and we make, we make things that shouldn't be a big deal a big deal. God, we confess that this often comes at the cost of unity, even unity in the church. This comes at the cost of us being able to love other people for who they, they are as you would have loved them. And so, Father, we pray that you would send us your Holy Spirit to help us stay off of the throne and to let you be the judge. God, help us to see the way that you loved others and for us to do the same. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.